God, over this next hour, would you do something amazing? Would you speak in such a way that every one of us would understand, regardless, Lord, of where we've come from spiritually, regardless of where we come from geographically, or even in regards to our language bases, God, that you know how to communicate with each one of us in a way that we get. And I love that, God, that the pressure is not on me, it's on you. And I just want to surrender myself to you and say, God, have your way, even as we sang, God, have all of me. I offer myself as an instrument of your righteousness, and I ask for you to be glorified in it. Please do something amazing. I commit this time, I pray you would redeem every second. Minister now profoundly, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say tonight, as I would any, please don't ever just believe me. Don't assume because I say it and I've got a mic or I'm called a pastor that it must be the truth. You're given Bibles for a reason. They're not the Calvary Chapel version or the My version. They're just the New King James. And you're welcome to keep one if you're promised to read it. But otherwise, we print the scriptures in your in your handouts just to make it easier for you. Uh, here's our timestamp. We are roughly at about 1,000 B.C. That's 3,000, a little more than 3,000 years ago. There was a king that people asked for that was a king in regards to great in his calling but had no consecration in his heart. He really... He's kind of one of those guys, I mean, we can look at it from a lot of different perspectives. Somebody that really was called to do something, but doesn't have in them what is necessary for them to be great at it. And what was to be great at it really wasn't going to be natural talent. The same way that you can be extremely gifted musically and never be a songwriter, or be extremely gifted in dance and never be a choreographer. It takes something else inside of you to do that. And in the same way, this king understands what God is looking for, somebody to lead and to guide and to guide and to love his people. What he's really looking for is somebody that really just wants to be like him, that wants to love him, God, that is. Not just somebody who wants to flaunt his power or become important or be liked by people. And the guy that is called to do so will find, as it raises up, really kind of demonstrates that he's got this great seat in this great position, but he really doesn't have the spiritual wherewithal to, to fulfill what's required of him. That's Saul. His name, Shual, means sought after in Hebrew. And, and ultimately, God tells us in two different occasions that he's found his replacement. And he tells him that before, if you will, David overtakes the stage. 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, and 1 Samuel 15, verse 28. And by the time that God tells him that he's found this to this guy, Saul, that he's found his replacement, the, the guy that he's talking about is a teenager, roughly probably 15 years old. And I don't know about you, but to be replaced by somebody better I really would bother me, unless it has something to do with computers, I, I would imagine it would probably be weird for, for me at least, for someone just to be better and they were 15. And what we read about the guy Saul is he was head and shoulders taller than everyone else. What made him sort of, if you will, stand above everyone else is that he literally stood above everyone else until a giant steps on there named Goliath. And it's important to recognize that's when this kid, God's replacement, starts to shine. But what I love about this guy that is his replacement is that what God says made him so good was not what he had accomplished, what he had amassed, or even what he was naturally gifted at, but rather what he was after. What it tells us is God says, I found someone after my own heart. God speaking. See, what makes you great in the sight of God is what you're after, not what you've accomplished. 
And you would know that. I mean, if you ever fell in love with someone, you would know that for all of the tremendous accomplishments you could do outside of them, the one thing that would mean the most is your hot pursuit and right pursuit of them. Well, God's the same in that. And so when the kid starts to shine in this, the beauty is, is that he's more than just a shepherd kid. He's more than just a teen. What I love about it is that he's a songwriter. And on David's deathbed, Davidum means beloved, by the way. And on his deathbed, he doesn't call himself the giant slayer or the greatest king or any of that. What he calls himself is David the sweet psalmist. They really like that. And what God does, consider this, 3,000 years ago was he has this particular guy experience crazy, whack job, rough life because the king that was the incumbent has no interest in stepping off the throne. Saul has no interest in collecting his P45 and going home. Saul is convinced he's going to keep the throne as long as he lives. And understand, if you ever kind of debate about Christianity or who Jesus really is or what it really means to follow him, understand that's the battle you have too. The battle is that Jesus wants to take that throne and he has a right to take it. And we're like, no, 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 no. I'll let you do whatever you want to do that benefits me. I love the idea of a get-out-of-the-hell-free card, but I'm not really interested in you really taking the throne. Well, that's where Saul is, and he's in a real bad way because of it. And what we get this privilege of watching is David will run for his life like Jason Bourne, and he's running for his life because not only the king, but the majority of the army that David trained, raised up, and fought with, well, they're now hunting him down, and David's a wanted fugitive. And David's running through the fields that he used to lead his own sheep in. And that's a kind of a cool little point as we get into our text. Because please understand, David had to know where the watering holes were because he had to do it for his sheep. And he had to know where the caves were because he had to keep his sheep safe. And all those times that he was doing something so menial and mundane and seemingly insignificant, well, to be honest, God was training him for this time where now, to be honest, it's going to save his life. But the beauty in all of this is that this shepherd has to learn how to become a sheep. He has to learn how to make the Lord his shepherd because David no longer is going to be the man in charge, if you will. He's going to be the man who's going to be running for his life. And he's now gathered up 400 other guys who have a real problem with Saul as well. So in the midst of this, David writes songs. And a psalm is a song is a psalm. That's what we have here. Of the 72, 73 psalms of the 150 we have in Scripture that are written by David, at least 52 of them are written while David was in great duress. Which means David's hottest moments of writing songs, to be honest, were at the worst times in his life. And if you are a songwriter, you kind of know that tends to be the case. When things really kind of hit the wall, usually that's when the songs start popping out. I mean, let's face it, if Taylor Swift didn't break up with anyone, she'd have maybe one album's worth of material. Anyways, but the whole point of it is, is that as we go through this guy's life and the stories and the things he experiences, we get to throw in some of these songs that are actually, we are told when they're kind of written, where David's experiencing this, and you kind of get the idea, we get more than just the what took place, but kind of the how he's, how he's, what he's experiencing in the middle of all of that. So, David has fled from Saul. He's fled to a town called Nob. He told the priest he was on a secret mission. He lied. Saul finds out about it. He kills the priest, the priest's family, and everybody in the town. Then David flees from there to Gath. Gath, by the way, he'll be captured. That's Philistine territory. That's enemies of Israel. 
David fakes madness. He feigns madness. The king releases him. He's like, do I have a shortage of madmen? And David will flee into a cave. As David flees into a cave, he kind of and he writes this song, and it's a powerful psalm, Psalm 142, because he just basically, oh, nobody cares about me. I'm all here by myself, and oh, I'm so deserted. And his mom shows up, and his dad shows up, and his brothers show up, and 400 guys show up. David's hiding from everyone, and all of a sudden, at least 410 different people have found him. I guess the song becomes a little bit weirder to sing. I imagine David didn't sing the song much after that. But from there, then David went and he dropped off Lamedad in Moab and then winds up in a place called the Forest of Cheret. And Cheret, by the way, comes from a root word, which means, if you will, to shape or to carve or to mold. We're going to see that here even with the word Kela. Kela, by the way, is a word that means like a potter carves off the outside of when he's making a pot and so forth, and then he flings it away. And you understand, please hear me, as God is preparing David to be the greatest king that will be up to Jesus, part of it is going to be the crucible. And understand, for the hard times you go through, God is going to carve and to shape and to mold and pound and put things into place in such a way that every time the hardship is there, we tend to think of it as, God, either why have you deserted me? David will go through that, or we'll just want to blame the enemy. Well, the devil was whooping on my head. But the problem is, is that if God really has control, you can close that door, by the way. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, bro. I don't want to have to compete with, with that all night. You know, see, I make a mention about it and see how she pops in like that. Taylor, you're welcome to come to the study, but she can't sing. Oh, oh, okay, let's take a breath. All right. When we go through rough times, if we can be really honest, we'll either go through a crisis of our faith going, God, why are you doing this to me? Or we'll just blame Satan thinking, oh, Satan somehow juked left, God juked left, and then he sort of skirted around him. But how does that work? If God really is in control, how does Satan get past God? But we tend to think somewhere that any time life becomes inconvenient, that someone owes us something. It'd be like, you know, you're flying in a plane, you hit turbulence, and you want to get a refund from the pilot. But understand what God starts to show us in this is that his carving and his shaping may be extremely painful, but for everything that God does, it is to prepare you for greater greatness. And if you knew that, it might be a little easier to endure. So hear me out here. It tells us that in chapter 23, verse 1, and read along with me. You'll see it in your text. And we're going to learn some really, really cool lessons from the guy after God's own heart here. Then they told David, saying, look, the Philistines are fighting against Kela. And they are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Kala. But David's men said to him, Look, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go out to Kala against the armies of the Philistines? So David, excuse me, inquired of the Lord once again. And the Lord answered and said, Arise, go down to Kala, for I will deliver the Philistines in your hand. Now, okay, now get this for a moment. The nation Israel at this moment has declared war on David. The nation Israel is being led at this moment by Saul, 
All of the army other than David's men are hunting David down. He's got a bounty on his head. And in a moment like that, it would be very easy to hate Israel, even though he was part of it. And at this point, he can see things misled. He can see them going awry and being terribly misled. And David is innocent. David has not done anything to earn this kind of bounty. And yet, somewhere down the line, when an enemy attacks, the people that are trying to attack David, David's still in the middle of this. Let me say it this way. David was not so consumed by his hardships that he didn't see the need in others. And he wasn't so consumed in his hardships that he didn't seek God about those others. And David was not so consumed with his hardships that he didn't take such an offense that he wasn't available to be used to even help those that might have haunted him. Now listen, the easiest application for this, to be honest, is a person who's gone to church and had a bad experience. They've gone to church and somewhere in it that they felt judged whether they were or not. They felt like they weren't part of the club. They felt like they weren't liked. Maybe they saw some kind of horrible politic. Maybe they saw somebody that acted in a way that was very contrary to Jesus. Or maybe they turned on a television and they saw some guy in a 4,000 pound coat. And I mean that by money, not just weight. Waving it around, doing something flamboyant, pulling up in his Bentley or Rolls Royce. And, and, and somewhere in all of that, you're like, shine that, man. Who wants to be a part of that? And you watch people, by the way, who give their life to Christ and they want to join like the hate the church church. They want to tell you how they had a bad experience with somebody and somehow in that now they just want to hate the church. But they forget the part of it. It's like going to, the, to a hospital and saying, you know, I actually was offended because sick people were there. Yeah, that's what happens at a hospital. Sick people get well. You can go to a restaurant. And recently, by the way, I had food poisoning was that, about two weeks ago. Now, to be honest, that might have been Hugo, get what Hugo served me, but that's another story. But even though that was the case, I've still eaten out since then, and I've still eaten meals since then. I've still eaten food since then, because there's an appetite for me to do so. It keeps me alive. You may have had one of those relationships or several of those relationships where you got really burned. Someone flew in your face and they turned coat and they all of a sudden it was like I, you thought that all there was was a Dr. Jekyll but didn't realize a Mr. Hyde was coming shortly after. And you thought, never again. But then somewhere down the line you got lonely and you wanted someone else. This is the reason I say that. Is inside you there are certain appetites. God put them there. And you could try to fill them with the wrong things. And when you fill them with the wrong things, you could get really hurt. But that appetite doesn't go away. And when that appetite arises again, it's usually met at that point with anger and bitterness and confusion and distress. But when you seek the Lord, God starts to heal those things. And see, what David's going to learn here is to do more than love like the world does. He has to learn to love like God does. And that, by the way, is an extremely painful lesson. And it will only be demonstrated at times, to be honest, where it really does hurt. So there are people attacking Kyla. 
And David, what he says is he seeks the Lord. Now, this is a really good thing to note, by the way. David doesn't just look and say, hey, somebody's getting picked on, and I'm just going to jump into the middle of that. Hey, before I knew the Lord, I was an extremely violent person, but I tried to always kind of had a weird hero complex. I didn't want to just get into a fight to get into a fight. So I always tried to look for, like, the bigger guy picking on the little guy. So somehow I felt like I was justified to jump into a fight, which is always stupid. I mean, in retrospect, but not back then it, it didn't look as dumb as it really was. And the reason I say that is, is that, you know, I know how to jump into a fight without really seeking God on it. And I understand that David knows somewhere in all this, he still has an appetite to be a part of Israel. He's still ordained as Israel's king. And so he asks God, hey, God, do you want me to go? And God says, you should go. And then David turns to his guys. I remember he's got 400 guys on him. And he's like, guys, we need to go and we need to go rescue Hela. And Hela, by the way, is a fortress. It is a fortified city. And the guys are like, are you nuts? They're trying to kill you. We're hiding out. What do you think happens when we go out into the open? The satellite images are going to pick us up. The voice recognition software is going to catch us on our cell phones. Bada boom, bada bing. They're going to send in a drone and blast us with some laser. I mean, think about what they're thinking here. And understand, David now has a real conflict because it tells us, by the way, in Psalm 20, I'm sorry, in Deuteronomy 20, it says that when you're about to go to war, you actually ask your, your army, all right, who's afraid? And when the guys say they're afraid, you send them home. See, what God knows is, is that fear is contagious. And the moment you start getting people that are freaking out, they freak out other people. How many of you know about the whole campfire story phenomenons, right? You're all sitting around a campfire. You're, you know, sticking marshmallows in a fire or whatever. And someone goes, hey, let me tell you a story about the guy scratching at the window or whatever. And everyone's freaking out about a balloon or a marshmallow or, a, you know, some ripper or something. It's amazing how that can really breed. And God says, hey, look, you got people freaking out on you. Send them home. The problem is... There's no home to send these guys to. So what do you do? What do you do when you know God's told you to do something, but the people that are closest to you actually aren't into it? You know what you do is you go back to the Lord. And that's really, to be honest, not a natural thing. We might spend most of our time trying to convince them. Come on, guys. How many Philistines have I taken down up to this point? Do you think it's going to be any different now? When I took down a ten and a half foot guy, you really think these guys are going to be any problem? I'll just aim lower with my slingshot. And he goes to the Lord and he goes, all right, God, they're freaking out. Should we go? God says, go. And what's interesting is, is what, they're going, what David's going to learn is what a real friend looks like. And a real friend... It isn't about not getting scared. It's about sticking with somebody even when you are. What we're going to see is that's not going to be the case for everyone. So David gets his second opinion. By the way, did you notice David's second opinion was also the Lord? I mean, you ask God and God tells you something and the circumstances seem opposite. Do you try to get an opinion from someone else? Like, how is that going to improve when God was the one who told you in the beginning? David's second opinion was from the same place he got the first opinion. That was from God. God, I just want to make sure I heard you right. And God tells him. He doesn't just say go. He says, look it, I've promised you victory here. Go and do it. Verse 5 tells us then, David and his men went to Chela and fought with the Philistines, struck them with a mighty blow and took away their livestock. So David saved the inhabitants of Chela. Now, don't miss this. It tells us that the people were, in essence, sitting ducks. They were 
They were in a place where the entire town would have been destroyed had David not intervened. They were in peril. David and his men show up. By the way, why isn't Saul defending these guys? Well, to be honest, might I say, maybe it's because this was a battle God ordained for David. David shows up and he's like, here I come to save the day. You know, and David just shows up with his men and they just kick serious Philistine booty and out and they're done. But it doesn't just say that they killed the Philistines. What else did they do there? I mean, God, I mean, it kind of almost like seems like, why did you even put this in here? It tells us that they also took away what? Their livestock. So what's the big deal about that? Well, might I consider the moment you start being responsible for livestock, what do you have to become? You have to become shepherds. And when all of a sudden, David's mighty men that will become David's mighty men, they were David's fearful men just a few verses before this, until David prayed again. David's mighty men have to learn to become shepherds. And you know what's interesting? Once they do, once they start to become shepherds, David's group grows. Because David can't be the only shepherd among these people. So this is what we read, verse 6. Now what happened when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Chela, that he went down with an ephod in his hand. That's, by the way, the priestly clothing. So Saul was told that David, and Saul was told that David had gone to Chela. And Saul said, and listen to this weird statement by Saul. God has delivered him into my hand, for he shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. You know what's weird is how many times Saul is going to mention God in compensation. But let me warn you of something. How can a man be so determined to fight and assume that God is on his side when he's spending all of his time running from him? Do you really think God wants to bless you when you're running from him? God created you to be with him. And because of that, what God really wants to bless is anything that turns you into his direction to draw you deeper into him. You want to run from him? Don't expect God to bless that. Saul thinks, oh, David, God delivered David into my hands. I remind you, David's supposed to be the king. Saul's not stepping off the throne. What's clear from this, we'll find, is that Saul knows it. And somehow he thinks that God's going to give him this victory. Verse 8 says, Saul called his people together to go to war, to go down to Chela, and to besiege David and, besiege David and his men. When David knew that Saul plotted evil against him, he said to Abiathar, the priest, bring the ephod here. What he's asking is for this guy now, Abithar, to, to take the official role of a priest. And David is going to inquire of the Lord with this priest beside him. And he says, O oh Lord God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Chela to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Chela deliver me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard, O oh Lord God of Israel? I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, Oh, he'll come down. So David then said, Will the men of Chela deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will deliver you. Stop. Do you realize what just happened? David just risked his life. He took 400 scared men who didn't want to go. David gathered his men. He put himself out into the open. He risked his life in the life of every one of these men. And he went to battle for these people who were going to die if he didn't show up. And he rescued them. He came in like a hero and he drove out the Philistines. And in return, they were going to hand him over to Saul. 
What do you do when that happens? What do you do when you've just risked your life for somebody that turns and stabs you in the back? How do you handle that? Where you know you probably couldn't give it any more than you've given. Well, what David is really learning is the difference between a real friend and somebody who isn't. But he's also learning the difference between real love and what the world calls love. You see, Christ's love demands no return to initiate. He loves you whether you hate him. And that's what scripture says. When we were yet enemies in our hearts and minds to him, he still died for us. When we were determined to fight him, he still died for us. He still paid our bill. He still paid for our crime. Because the love that God possesses is not a worldly love. You're not going to find that kind of love here. Not unless God himself is behind it. And David is in a really weird place. Because at a moment like this, David clearly... Now, if David beat up the bully, how easy would it be to beat up the beat up? One. Did you get that? Does that make any sense? I mean, if David beat the Philistines and the Philistines were beating up the people of Hela, wouldn't it just be easy for David just to turn around and kill everyone in Hela? Clearly, they couldn't have been much of a threat. But he didn't do that. I find this interesting. A man after God's own heart, here, by the way, he just doesn't assume that doing good for somebody, to the point even of their mortal rescue, would be enough to guarantee that they'll be friends with him for life. Now, when God records it in Scripture here, clearly, according to this, we look and every one of us kind of goes, David, yeah, Kyla. I mean, that's what we see when we see this. I mean, we see the clarity of that because we're not in the middle of the situation. But if David had gone off the Richter and just started killing everybody, it would be a little harder to say that. Even though there's a part of us that, would, that might be able to sympathize with David's hurt. But please understand, David's setting us up for somebody that will be hurt infinitely more than David will be. Because Jesus came to save every human being. Which means he came to save Anton LaVey, who started the, the Church of Satan. And it means that he came to save, he died to save every atheist who takes their stand against him. Everyone who says, everyone from Voltaire who tried to claim that he would wipe out Christianity within his lifetime, to everyone who, who makes every blasphemous and evil and rotten statement against him, to any form of discord, distaste, and dishonor, and yet God died for them. And I understand that David is experiencing something to some degree that is infinitely less than God himself experiences at every given moment. But the saddest part, to be honest, is what he's experienced from me. Because I was enough trouble, not only just before I said yes to him, but to be honest, even after. And David here, by the way, well, what does he do? Well, it tells us in verse 13, David and his men, about 600. Now, wait a minute, 600. Do you remember how many came to him at the cave? 400. I remind you, what's happened in between this time? The men became shepherds. And when the men became shepherds, David's group grew. And as they're gathering traction and recruits now, by the way, David means he has a bigger army than he started with. He arose and departed from Chela, and he went wherever they could go. David, you know what David did? He just left. 
He stepped out of this battle. He says, this isn't mine to fight. Man, if you could see how many times recently we have seen people turn coat and just go mental, do really, really nasty things because they're human beings like we are. And how easy it would be, how natural it would be to just put on the gloves and start dropping bodies. Especially in many cases where you just know that you're completely innocent to the situation, but you have enough on them that you could drop them an instant with just the information you have in your hands. But the Lord's like, that's not the way we do this. You give me space. Because in the end, all I want to win is a fight. And what, in the end, what God really wants to win is the soul. So David just leaves. Verse 13 again. David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Chila and went wherever they could go. Then it was told Saul that David had escaped from Chila, so he halted the expedition. expedition. Saul at that point, why go there? He's not there anymore. And David stayed then in strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains of the wilderness of Ziph. By the way, if you want to look, on the same sheet that had the songs on the other side is a map. Now, that may not be much of a reference for you unless you're kind of familiar with Israel, but Israel's marked by land or by water masses. There's the dead, the med, and the red. The Red Sea is south of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea should be there, kind of it's the big body of water in the middle. The med is the Mediterranean to your left, and the Sea of Galilee is up in that little kind of harp shaped. As a matter of fact, it's called the Sea of Chinaret or Gennesaret, which is the Hebrew and Greek word for harp because of its shape. Can you find there the town of Ziph? See if you can find it. Just give it a shot. Can you find Kela on there? Kela? Boom. Nice job. So David goes to the wilderness of Ziph. Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. Now here's the important thing to note here in this. David is a wanted man, and there are more than likely at least a quarter of a million people hunting him down. And they can't seem to find him. Verse 15 says, When David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life, David was in the wilderness of Ziph in the forest. Then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand and got, Now stop, stop, stop. Did you get this? David hid in a cave so no one can find him. And when David hid in a cave, his mom, his dad, his family, his brothers, and 400 guys showed up. But Saul couldn't find him. A half a million people, a quarter of a million people couldn't find David, but his mom could. Well, if you're a mom, you kind of know that still works. And 400 other disgruntled guys, many of which, by the way, were in debt. Then David's hiding out in a forest... Saul and all of his men can't find him, all the Secret Service, all the FBI, you know, all the NSA, they can't find him. But David's best friend shows up and he can find him without a problem. And that happens to be Saul's son. And here's the beauty in this, that in all of these cases, God knows how to bring someone in your life when you need it the most to put you right back where you need to be. Because it, let's face it, at moments like this, it's pretty easy to, easy to totter, isn't it? Because you see the injustice and you see the unfairness. And to be honest, it's pretty easy to get consumed in it. But to be honest, to get consumed in it is like getting consumed with really, really bad perfume or cologne. Because in the end of it all, no matter what you do, it just doesn't seem to get off of you. He 
He's hiding out. He's a wanted fugitive. He's seeking in every way to stay under the radar. Invisible, unfindable. But his best friend shows up. Listen, it says in Proverbs 27:17, As iron sharpens iron, so does a man's countenance of his friend. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, it says two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their labor. If they fall down, they may not be able to get up by themselves, but another will help pull them up. When they lie down, they'll be warmer. And though one might be overpowered, they cannot overpower two. And a cord of three strands is not easily broken. He says, look at all the benefits that come with having a friend. But not just a friend. It tells us, by the way, that there is a friend that sticks even closer than a brother. And though a friend loves at all times, it tells us in Proverbs 17, 17. And in Proverbs 18, 24, when it tells us a friend sticks closer than the brother, it says, do you want friends? Try this. Be friendly. How is that for a really simple fortune cookie statement? You want to have friends, you should be friendly. Here's the point. God knows we weren't created to be alone. And there are many reasons why we feel like we have a right to be alone. But it tells us in Proverbs 18:1, whoever seeks to isolate themselves only seeks their own benefit and they rage against all reason. And you can be hurt and want to crawl into a cave and die. But God says, you know what would be really better instead? Is for you to get a real friend right now. It tells us for what it's worth in Romans 1, Paul said that he had really tried to go and visit the Romans. But he hadn't been, he hadn't been able to up to this point. But he said, I really hope to show up there that you and I can share this gift that you and I would be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. He says, in the simplest sense, I know this. If you and I sat down over coffee or tea or, you know, over hummus, I'm sure of this. I would be encouraged by seeing how you trust God. And I would expect you to be encouraged by the way I trust Him. There's nothing, you know, proud about that. It's like I know this is what God does when He puts Christians together. We should be more encouraged. Encouraged to actually take those brave steps to walk away from the things that we're more familiar with. More encouraged to take those steps knowing that we will, cre- we will receive the mockery of those around us. But at least we won't be doing it alone. And I think of Paul in the New Testament and I think, and Paul understood this whole idea of being betrayed and how that was a real struggle for him. The last letter he writes while he's in the Mamertine prison in Rome, waiting to get his head lopped off, he says this in Second Timothy chapter 4. In verse 9 he says, he's speaking to Timothy, who was, by the way, one of his, his protégés, if you will. He says, look, be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me. Having loved this present world, he's departed for Thessalonica. Crescens, who's another person, had left for Galatia. Titus had left for Dalmatia. He says, really, to be honest, well, well, Really, there's only Luke's here with me, and Luke was his doctor. And then he said in the same chapter, verse 16, he goes, at my first defense, no one stood with me. And I wonder what that would be like. Now, please hear me in this, and we'll get back right into our text. Paul planted churches around the world. 
Paul went, and everywhere he went, he went and preached the gospel where people had never heard about Jesus. He saw people raised up. He saw a healthy fellowship there that he could minister to. And he left guys in charge. They looked. He says, I really see a calling in you. I see a love. I see a shepherd's heart in you. And I see a passion for God's heart. I really want to see that replicated in these people. And I want to see you grow and them follow you growing. And then he goes, and so he's got these people that he's in essence sort of a spiritual father to. And so many people he soaked his life and he was beat to death in front of him. And we get back in after them. And in all of this, and here he is, he's standing before Nero. And, he's, and he says, he's standing before Nero, the madman. He, it's a time where you need people to give character reference. And think of the guys he would call. Who were the guys, if you will, Proverbially, if you will, or, you know, on your speed dial, the people you just kind of know, hey, if I needed a couple guys that I knew would stand with me, I would expect Daniel, I would expect Bruno, I would expect Hugo, I would expect these guys to stand there. And you call all of these guys, and they're way too freaked out by the idea of standing with you at Nero. And they're just like, no, man, you're on your own. And imagine Paul kind of looking and the weirdness he feels at a moment like that, going, how could this be? I mean, I'm. Oh, my whole life was soaking into you guys. How could this be? And then he goes, but you know what? The Lord stood with me and he strengthened me. Saul got to that point and Paul in the New Testament got to that point where he realized, hey, look, you know what? I got to be willing to stand alone regardless. Hey, it's great to have you guys there. And man, what a comfort that can be. But I got to tell you, you make the choice regardless. You get married. Some people don't applaud that marriage. Some people do. But you stick with it. Because you made a commitment. You said yes to Jesus. And some people will applaud it. Some people will think you're a total idiot. But you made a commitment and you stand with it. Because you made the commitment. The good news is he's committed to you. So Jonathan shows up and it tells us that he strengthened his hand in God. He didn't just encourage him. He didn't just give him a soft shoulder to cry on for David to write another one of those sad songs. He actually said, look at man. I really believe that God's got a calling on your life. And this is somehow strangely part of it. Verse 17, he said to him, don't fear for the hand of Saul. My father shall not find you. <laughs> Funny, he could find him, though. You shall be king over Israel and I'm going to be next to you. Even as my even my father Saul knows that. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord and David stayed in the woods and Jonathan went to his own house and that's basically the last time David's going to see him alive. Then the Ziphites came up to Saul in Gebeah where Saul lives and he said, Is David not hiding with us in the strongholds in the woods? In the hill of Chachilah, which is on the south of Yeshimon? Verse 20, Now therefore, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul. Come down, and our part shall be to deliver him into the king's hand. Saul says, and notice how he brings God into it again, Blessed are you of the Lord, for you had compassion on me. Please find out for sure, and see the place where his hideout is, and who has seen him there, for I'm told he's very crafty. Therefore, see therefore, and take knowledge, of the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with certainty and I will go with you. And it shall be, if he's in the land, that I will search for him throughout all the clans of Judah. So they arose and went to Ziph before Saul, but David and his men were in the wilderness of Ma'om on the plain in the south of Yeshimon. Now, please hear me, because now we're about to fight Adam up. David's a songwriter. 
And I find it interesting. We have we could certainly take songs and attach them to what David experienced with the people of Chela. But we have nothing that's listed for that. But David had just been completely betrayed by a group of people he sought to save. Then David goes to the next place. And as he goes to the next place, they hand him in. And now it just seems like it's relentless. Can I say it this way? And and forgive me for this metaphor because it may not mean much to you. But when you surf, the danger often isn't the first wave. You know, you kind of you get up on the board and there's a certain moment where you got to commit because if you don't commit, you're going to get pitched. And as the wave starts to break, you kick in hard and you ride that thing down and things are awesome. But the moment you leave that board, you know, things aren't going to be good. And there you are. And just do this. Walk by a, a three story building. When you walk, I walk the alleyway here towards, you know, on Neal Street and just look up and realize that's a wave. And then as you kind of look up and you're like, because you know, the moment you fall, you're, you know, in my case, because I'm goofy, but I'm facing a wave that's going left. And as I'm looking at it, you're like, oh, and then all of a sudden it's like you look at the wave and it goes, you know, it just starts pounding you and pounding you. And you come up for air and you're like, just in time to see the next wave go hi. And then you're like, and you get up that third of, and then the wave goes, and here's the point. The first wave was bad. Can you imagine someone's going to be listening to this online and they're just going to be, hopefully they're not driving. And look at The reason I say that is that first wave hurts. And that first wave's a bit disoriented. But the second wave that comes at you is where you start to wonder if you're actually going to make it through this. Because the first wave comes, you come down from it and that instant sort of you know, instinct of surviving, you go, oh, I'm going to get up. I've got to get up. i got to get up. And you get up, and then it's like, Bruh! and you're like, okay, i got, I got to get up. But by the third one, you're like, oh, man, how many waves is in this set? You know? And the reason I say that is life's like that sometimes. Where it would be nice if something really bad happened, and then, like, bad went on vacation. You know what I mean? It's like, wow, okay, I can see that something really bad happened to you. Well, we'll schedule the next, actually, we'll schedule the next really bad moment in about a decade, give you some time to heal. But that isn't how it works, is it? What you get is, often, you kind of get whatever that first thing comes in. Is you, the moment you start to feel like you've popped your head up from it, and you're like, yes, you go, ah, again, and you're like, oh, come on. And from this point on, you're going to go, oh, I remember that stinking wave thing he was talking about. I get it. And the reason I say that is, somewhere in all of this, David now finds out that the Ziphites have handed him in. They've ratted him out. They've grasped him. And as that's the case... David writes a song, and Adam's going to read it to you now. How's that? It's in the blue. This one? Uh, just take that one right there. Sweet. Um, is David not hiding with us? Save me. Ah. To the chief musician with stringed instruments, a contemplation of David when the Ziphites went and said to Saul, Is David not hiding with us? Save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your strength. Hear my prayer, O God, give ear to the words of my mouth, for strangers have risen up against me and oppressors have sought after my life. They have not set God before them, Selah. Behold, God is my helper. 
The Lord is with those who uphold my life. He will repay my enemies for their evil. Cut them off in your truth. I will freely sacrifice to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me out of all trouble and my eye has seen its desires upon my enemies. Thank you, Henry. I feel like, you know, we're kind of in the coffee house. We should probably be like... Now, notice, by the way, what David has to do in this song. Did you notice what David didn't do in this song? He didn't start with, like, bum, 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 bum. Man, this sucks. Burr, burr, burr. I mean, I mean, where he didn't develop an awful lot about what he's experiencing more than he recognized his need for God's intervention. Did you notice that? I mean, he, I mean, there's two sides to take to this. And hear me on this because we're almost done. In Second Corinthians, it tells us there's two kinds of sorrow. There's a sorrow that is a worldly sorrow and there's a sorrow that's a godly sorrow. A worldly sorrow leads to death. A godly sorrow leads to repentance and ultimately to eternal life. It isn't that you feel bad or you feel sorry or you feel wrong. It's what you do with it. And either you get consumed with yourself or you lay it at the feet of God. Those are your two choices. When you get consumed with it yourself, the only thing you want to do late, sooner or later, the only thing you're going to want to do is die. But if you take it to the feet of God, well, then everything seems to change. And notice where his focus is. Save me, O oh God. Where's his focus? God, by your name, vindicate me by your strength. Where's his focus? This is an easy one. God, let's try that. Where's his focus? We do serve. Anyways, hear my prayer, oh God. Where's his focus? Yeah, see, this is good. You're doing it. You're doing it. You're doing it, Peter. Okay, give ear to the words of my mouth. Who is he speaking to? Yes. Now, strangers have written up against me. Oppressors have sought my life. His focus isn't on God there. Did you notice that? Here's my problem. They have not set God before them. Wait a minute. Did you notice something? Hear me. He saw the problem and then he inserted God into the problem. And for the moment, he's almost like a pity the fool. Because all of a sudden he realizes the ones who are trying to kill him are fighting God. So behold, God is my helper. Where's his focus? Yeah. The Lord is with those who uphold my life. Where's his focus? He will repay my enemies with evil. Cut them off in your truth. Who is he talking to? I will freely sacrifice to you. Focus. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. Focus. He is, for he has delivered me out of all my trouble. Wait a minute. He's delivered me out of all trouble? David writes this at this moment? Could you imagine claiming a victory like this? While you're still Jason Bourne? While you're still hunted like this? Because his focus has been so much on God, he's gotten God's perspective. And he's able to put the problem and all of the concerns and the threat in the face of God. And he realizes he's safe. So, verse 25. When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David. Therefore, he went down to the rock and he stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard about it, he pursued David to the wilderness of Maon. Maon means habitation. And Saul went on one side of the mountain, David and his men on the other side of the mountain. Good thing the mountain was large. So David made haste to get away from Saul, and Saul and his men were encircling David and his men to take them. Now, this is one of those really cool moments that you wish you could watch from space. 
where God's looking at the moment because it appears as if they're both either going clockwise or they're both going counterclockwise. But if they had both gone in opposite directions, they would have run into each other either way. The only way for this to work is, you know, imagine it's like David starts to run and he looks at these guys. Which way should we go? And they're like, let's go right. Okay, we'll go right. And then Saul's men are running from the other way. Which way should we go? And they're like, let's go right. And God's like, tell them, go right. No, let's go right. And they're going right. And now they're going burn around and nobody's catching anyone. I love that about God, how he works this. So David got away. A messenger then, verse 27, came to Saul and said, hasten to come for the Philistines have invaded the land. Therefore, Saul returned from pursuing David and went to the Philistines. So they called the place Rock of Escape. So ready? Here's a, here's a fun one. Start, try this with me. Selah. Get together. Can give me, give me good Hebrew. Selah. Good. Hamalakot. That was good. Selah Hamalakot. Selah Hamalakot means Rock of Escape. So David went up from there and he dwelt in the strongholds of a place called the Fountain of the Wild Goats, or as we know it, in Gedi. Can you find that on your your map? David now has made his way into his second cave, and that's where we'll be next week. David has found himself in this place where he is hiding again, now with 600 men, who have seen a victory in Chelah. But let me ask you, when you look back at Chelah, do you think that what you hold on to is the victory God wrought you there? Or do you think what you remember is how you got stabbed in the back by the people you saved? I don't know if David really holds on to that like a big trophy. But it was the same David, by the way, who took on the bear and the lion because he was protecting sheep. And it's weird to think that even though these people were turning their back on him, David still saw them as sheep because David was learning to become one himself. So look, at this is where we go to prayer right now. And I just want to say this as we go to prayer. I wouldn't need a show of hands to ask how many of you here have been burned by someone. And even someone representing something that you really want to be a part of or wanted to be a part of or thought was cool or thought was awesome or whatever. And even the thought of it still brings up emotions and you feel weird and you feel wonky about the whole thing still and it still feels unsettled. Especially when you feel like it was more than just you're innocent but that you were actually above and beyond innocent. You were actually trying to help. And in that still there was this declaration of war against you. So what do you do with that? Do you hold on to it and keep from fighting? Do you blame the people and blame God somehow to think that God's not going to use this? Do you say, fine, then this whole thing's a sham? Have you ever heard the expression, the shadow proves the sunlight? It is, if there really is a counterfeit or there really is a shadow of it, there must be something genuine to create it. Hey, there have been all kinds of counterfeits about love. There have been all kinds of counterfeits about what God and who God really is and what his people should be like. But if we're going to follow the Lord, we're going to be hated. And we're going to be hated by people we want to like us. Can I say this as your friend? Get over it. Anything you do well is going to create enemies. You're aware of that. 
Any of you ever play sports competitively here? I was raised in the home of a professional athlete. The better you get, the more people don't like you. It's the weirdest compliment you can get. You step out on the field or on the court and people look at you with this look and they try to intimidate you. There's a weird compliment in that because they wouldn't give you the time of day if they didn't think, oh, well, no, that guy's no trouble. Yet we as Christians, we walk out there and someone tries to intimidate us to silence and we're like, yes, sir. Okay, don't want to step on your toes. But we're like, we don't see it that way. We don't see it as someone going, hey, man, we're freaking them out because we're happy and they're not. We're freaking them out because we actually have genuine fellowship and they're still trying to figure out how to stab you. I mean, you look at all of those things. And the reason I say that is, is that somewhere in it, we've got to lay it before God and go, God, I don't understand all this, but I know you're good. And I know you're carving and I know you're shaping and the masterpiece you're going to make at the end requires this route. And I imagine the clay would never want to say, hey, take that knife and carve it into me. I'm sure it's going to be nice. But he's chiseling off stuff, to be honest, that just isn't going to work. But in it, somewhere, what I see is that David has stayed committed through times where it would have been, a lesser man would have broken and bailed. Can I tell you, the greatest man that ever lived was when God clothed himself in flesh. And he was committed. He was so committed that he would be praying for the people that would spit on him, pluck his brows and his beard, nail him to the cross, And even while he's hanging, would mock him and he would say, Father, forgive them. Talk about commitment. And when they say, come down from the cross, if you're really, really the Christ, come down from the cross. Now, you could be thankful I'm not Jesus, because if it were me, I'd have come down off the cross and went, bam, knocked his jaw so hard that he'd still be finding it somewhere out of our universe. Then I'd get back on the cross and be like, how you like me now? And the father would say, man, actually, now you can't do the sacrifice. Because you've got to be completely innocent to do this. And that just, that, that ended it. Do you realize all Jesus had to do was mess up once and he wouldn't have redeemed us? Talk about commitment. One sin, one sin would have disqualified him from dying on the cross for us. One sin. Talk about commitment. And we read he was tempted in every way as we are. Every temptation you've experienced, Jesus experienced that temptation. Here's the weird part. It's like... We experience the small benefit of the, because it says sin is pleasurable for a season. We got the pleasure of, this, of the sin, and Jesus wanted to pay in the bill. It's like we got the money from the loan shark, and Jesus got his knuckles broken. That's how committed he was. Because, see, what Jesus saw was so much more than the cross. He knew at the cross the debt would be paid, but he also knew that three days later, on the third day, he would rise again. And there was a whole new life to be had where we could say yes to him. So let me ask you a question as we go to prayer now. Have you said yes to him? Have you said yes to the offer that God says, let me redeem you and wash you clean and declare you innocent? Hey, look, at you could be too proud. You could think you're too smart. But what intelligent person in their right mind pays a bill that somebody already paid? That's not about being smart. That's about being proud. Because what we're saying is, I actually don't like it. I don't like the fact you paid that price. I'd rather pay it myself. Well, I can tell you what, you, it's pretty hard to insult a person more than that. And then to think somehow in that you can demand a right to heaven. Well, I don't want to believe in heaven. Good. Well, you don't have to believe in gravity either. But when you jump off the building, it's still going to disagree with you. Truth is truth. And I'm just inviting you to this. If my God is that committed before you hated him, how much more will be committed to you when you say yes? 
And even when you struggle and all of that, remember, it tells us, he who began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it. He's, gonna, he's not going to stop in the middle of this. Jesus is never quit in the middle of a project and you will not be his first. So you're like, well, I've given him all kinds of grief. I want to remind you, Jesus knew all of that before he got into the relationship. And he never said no. So as we go to prayer, if you haven't said yes to Jesus, I'm going to invite you to, but if you have said yes to Jesus, I just want to invite you to this. To let God wash us clean of the stuff that we're holding on to that actually keeps us from actually enjoying him like we should. Let's face it, this could have been the end of David. At a moment like this, I don't, I don't want him to kill something. But unless you hand it to God, you're going to carry it with you, and it's not intended to be your burden. You've maybe you've heard it said, bitterness is like drinking poison to spite your enemy. I think it's time to let it go. You go, well, I can't. Well, then just give God permission to come in and take it, to search and seize, because he really wants to set you free. Will you pray with me? Lord, I want to thank you for this beautiful evening. I want to thank you for this beautiful text. I want to thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to sing songs of praise to you and to offer ourselves and surrender, recognizing real worship is simply handing ourselves to you. But we recognize, Lord, in handing ourselves to you, Lord, that means that we hand ourselves like clay in your hands to be shaped to your project, to your vision, to your foresight, not to ours. And there are moments where we would really like to tell you what we think could be best for us, but I know you know better. And I imagine what we might ultimately say in, the, in, in that is that we would like a life without discomfort, without turbulence or tribulation, without discord. But all the comfort in the world will not in any way make us best. Because you're not about carving something nicer or doing a remodel. You're about making masterpieces. And you know what you're doing. And I pray for every person here who has said yes to you and they know they've said yes to you. And somehow in all of this, they've held on to things, Lord. Often what I've found most amazing in recent years is how many times people hold on to other people's offenses and they feel it. Though nothing has ever happened to them personally, they've seen someone else talk about their experience and they use that as a launch pad to hate the church or hate people or hate Christians or hate whatever, though they themselves have never even experienced anything. And I can see how active the enemy would be in doing such a thing, to shout such lies, to be such an accuser. And yet in that, you brought us here tonight to detox us, to deliver us from the filth and the poison we ourselves have consumed and continue to embrace. So, I pray, God, that you would, even as David demonstrated here, you would give us the wisdom to turn to you and for our appraisal of the circumstances around us, we would always insert you and realize how infinitely smaller it is compared to you. How infinitely weaker it is to you, our almighty God. And that tonight you would forgive us for holding on to things we know were bad. 
things that we know break your heart and things we know hurt us in spite ourselves. And Lord, as much as we've embraced things, God, that that are to our own demise, and we're familiar with that, and we know it, and we've shaped it into things we can hug and hold and entertain at night and wake up in fear with, we give you the right to come in and rip it out of us. It's like we've learned to live with cancer, but we don't know what it's like to be healthy anymore. And I pray tonight you would heal us. You would come out, come in and rip out every spiritual pathogen that's made itself at home within us. Tonight we could see a difference, a complete difference. Please. And I pray as we are here in prayer that if there be any in this room at the sound of this voice who you're not sure if you've ever said yes to God or you know you haven't. And somehow you want to hold on to something and you think something you're holding on to is more valuable than the love God has for you. And yet tonight what you're fighting is God who loves you. And you can think that what you're fighting is nonsense or some fairy tale or you can think what you're fighting is something that seems so foreign or whatever it is that you are fighting or you think you're fighting God has paid your bill he's taken all of the crimes of your heart and he's punished himself with them so that you don't have to And you can, in your pride, choose to stand and represent yourself. But don't blame God for that. Don't say He hasn't made it clear to you when you won't even look at the evidence or you won't say yes. But tonight He is saying, if you're willing today to receive my offer, I'm willing to make you clean and make you whole and give you peace and joy that you could never have imagined otherwise. And if that's you tonight, regardless of what you think you're betraying within you, but you know is right, to do this, I'm going to pray a prayer. I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree, I ask you to say amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let that be my prayer now. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, this is all true. You really want me. You really love me. You really care. You really want to wash away all of these things and to remove from me the burdens I have chosen to carry through the years. And you want to replace that with joy and peace and you want to embrace me and all of that weird stuff that seems so esoteric but somehow I get it. Tonight I just want to say yes. I'm going to take that risk, that crazy risk to say, look it, if you really want to make me innocent by the price you paid on the cross, you really want to give me a brand new life now? I give you a right to take the throne of my life if what you really want to do with it is make it beautiful. And I don't want to fight you over that. You certainly make beautiful things. Now make me so, I pray. I hand myself over to you. I do confess Jesus did die for me then and he rose again to give me new life and I say yes to that and I hand myself to you and say no. I'm your construction site. Have at me. I give myself to you in in Jesus' name. 
If you agree with that prayer, I simply ask you to sing. Amen.